Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion team. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 non-stop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is green and gold history. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Green and Gold History. Now time for another edition of Green and Gold History. We're here at the Coliseum right before the Athletics will finish up their day game on 4th of July. Happy 4th of July, everybody, against the Minnesota Twins. Dave Feldman is with us. He works for Major League Baseball. He works for ESPN. He works for the Pac-12 Network. And he is our A's historian. For a little Green and Gold History, we're doing our top 10 all-time Oakland A's. Today's position is... We're going to focus on left field, top 10 Oakland A's left fielders. I think it's uh, pretty safe to say we know who's going to be number one, but all time, 10 10 through 2 is going to be an adventure. But as we always start here, we start with the honorable mentions. Yeah, you talk about left field in Oakland history, and obviously number one is pretty self-evident. But it has been pretty much a a rotating wheel of guys. Uh, You go from 2000 to 2013. They had a different starting left fielder on opening day for 14 straight years. They couldn't find that consistent left fielder. It's It's been a revolving door out there. And they've also had some guys who've showed up for just like the one year, right? And that's where we'll focus today with our honorable mentions. How about 1970? Felipe Alou was the everyday left fielder. Uh, was going to be back in 71, but was traded after two games to the Yankees. Um 1985, they had traded Ricky Henderson in the offseason. They needed a left fielder. Dave Collins came in and played left field for the A's. Dave Collins, who was good for the Reds, especially in 79 when they made the postseason, was not good for the A's. Although, on July 4th, 1985, he had a walk-off hit against Dennis Lamp and the Toronto Blue Jays. There's his moment of glory. Uh, 1996, the A's brought in Phil Plantier to play left field. Phil Plantier with the unique batting stance where it kind of looked like he might have been in the loo as he was uh, swinging the bat. Uh, that did not go well. And, and a guy that you're pretty shocked at one point became a hitting coach in Major League Baseball. Yeah, especially with the way his setup was and the way he swung. How is he going to teach that to anybody? Why would you want to teach that to anybody? Uh, 2002, great year for the A's. David Justice came in and played a lot of left field that season. Uh, 2007, Shannon Stewart. Shannon Stewart had a really good year for the Athletics in his one year here and probably best known for breaking up Kurt Schilling's no-hit bid with two outs in the ninth inning. 
2009, the A's made a big move and they brought in Matt Holliday. You know, got traded by the end of July, but he was going to be that big power hitting left fielder for the A's that they needed. And again, did not work out. It was not a good uh, relationship in any ways. And in 2011, I think this did work out. Unfortunately, it was only for one year. And that was Josh Willingham. Josh Willingham had a fantastic season playing left field for the A's, but it was only here for one year. Uh, those are sort of your honorable mentions, your one year left field wonders in Oakland history. Willingham was one of those guys that said he wanted to be here, but you knew he did didn't want to be here and that's why I've always said for many years when you have guys like a Chris Davis who says you who wants to be here you have to ink him up because a lot of guys have lied to us over the years so when the guy says he doesn't want to be here make sure you get it done yeah and Josh Willingham went on and played for the Royals actually had a big hit in the wild card game in 2014 against the A's he was an A's he was a thorn in the A side once he left here but his one year here he was so productive and it would have been a nice piece to, to have kept on this team right but but it turns out there's somebody else on the list who came in in 2012 and, and took over the left field spot. Let's go to the top 10. Number 10, A's all-time left – Oakland A's all-time left fielders. Number 10 is Stan Javier. And Stan Javier was a longtime A, two different stints with the Athletics, originally acquired in the Ricky Henderson deal uh, before the 85 season. And at that point, he's sort of a catch of all trades, right? He's playing a little left, center, and right, not really playing every day. But in 88, in 88 as a fourth outfielder, he has 20 stolen bases. So he's a pretty productive guy when he got a chance to play. Was on the 89 World Championship team. Uh, but in 1990, they end up trading him to the Dodgers uh, for Willie Randolph. Comes back to the A's for the 94 and 95 season and is a really good player. In, in 94, he had 291, stole 12 bases. And then in 95, he hits a career-high 10 home runs, steals 24 bags. Uh, my one recollection of Stan Javier, and again, a good player, but he had an issue with the wall. And we see a lot of this with outfielders. A good outfielder will get to the wall, right, know where it is, and then jump above it. And Ramon Laureano does a great job of that. Javier's problem was he would get to the wall and then he would jump into it when he's trying to rob guys of home runs. He's like, what are you doing? Jump to it and over it, not into it. That's my one memory of Stan Javier. He was a, he's one of the one of those guys. If you really look back, had a very solid career. He did. He played a long time. This is a guy who came up when he was 20 years old. He actually made his debut with the Yankees in 1983, um, and he ended up playing a 17 years. Played with the Giants. Played with a lot of teams and was a good player. Again, we talk about clubhouse guys. Uh, he was a good teammate. He was a guy that everybody liked, and that pays off in long careers. So even when his skills started to diminish, there was still value in having him on your team. And he showed up in postseasons with the Mariners, uh, with the Dodgers. He's just, there's Stan Javier. He's a player. Number nine. Number nine, I think, is a guy who gets forgotten. But if you look back on the 2006 AOS champion A's, he was a key cog. And that was Jay Payton. And Jay Payton was acquired uh, in 2005, in July, right before the trade deadline, uh, for Chad Bradford from the Red Sox. And I remember there was a lot of talk about the A's needing to update their up update their outfield. They weren't happy with the production they were getting out there in 2005 and they needed to do something. They brought in Jay Payton um, because you look at 2005, Charles Thomas was playing left field. Charles Thomas was part of the Tim Hudson trade and he was the one where Bobby Cox with Atlanta said, Charles Thomas is the greatest outfielder I've ever had. Atlanta Braves knew how to sell their guys and unfortunately the A's were buying this and Charles Thomas was terrible. He couldn't hit. He couldn't. He could, might, might be a terrific defender, couldn't hit. 
Uh, the A's also used Eric Burns out there. They used Bobby Kelty. They needed to upgrade. And so they brought in Jay Payton. And he, he played well in the last 69 games with 13 homers. But in 2006, he was the left fielder. And it was just this solidifying force in the lineup. And this was a very good offensive team, right, with Frank Thomas and Nick Swisher and Eric Chavez and Milton Bradley. And this team did everything offensively. But you had to have that one guy. And Jay Payton was that guy. He had 296. He had 32 doubles. He had 10 home runs. He played every day. You could count on him. He was a he was a good defender, um, just a good solid cog in that team. And for, for that, he's number nine on the all-time left fielder list. Number nine. That means we're on to number eight. Number eight. Another guy who once he left the A's, uh, maybe ran into some trouble off the field. But when he was on the field for the A's as a good player. He was productive, and he was exciting. That man was Louis Polonia. And I say his name, and you laugh, right, because we know what happened off, off the field. But Louis Polonia came up with the A's in 87. He hits 287 and is a rookie with 29 steals. He hits 10 triples. He's flying around the field. Now, Louis was a little guy, and it's always fun. You always want to root for little guys, right, especially, you know, on a team that had Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. And here's little Louis Polonia running around. And so he was really valuable. And in 88, this is a World Series year he hit 292 with 24 steals now he wasn't playing every day but he played enough that he made an impact and he also started game four of the world series this was no joke this guy could play and he was a key player on these teams now in 89 he's still hitting for a high average but he's not getting off he's not walking enough and that and that was kind of his issue he was, he was a free swinger um and the a's needed to upgrade in left field and an upgrade they did in 1989 uh and we'll talk about that player a little later uh but you know, louis polonia played a long time he ends up playing in four world series in his career uh with the a's he also played with atlanta played with the yankees he's got two world series rings uh not bad for a guy who was thought of as maybe too small to play in the majors. Again, off the field issues, but an exciting player who lasted a long time. Did the off the field issues happen in Anaheim? Was it down with the Angels? Uh, he was with the Angels playing in Milwaukee. And we'll leave it at that. All right, we are at number seven. Number seven is Eric Burns. Uh, a fan favorite here, a local kid, right? He went to St. Francis High School. Uh, ended up going to UCLA. Uh, I, I remember when he makes his major league debut. It's in 2000. He gets called up. The A's are in Cleveland, and he has a good game. He's two for four. He steals the base, and his last time up, the Cleveland pitchers are so frustrated with him, they're throwing at him. His first game, he's getting thrown at because he had that way about him, right? If he, if Eric Burns was not on your team, he was one of those guys you're gonna hate because he just had that way about him and the way that he played. And you're like, this guy just bugs me, and they felt that from game number one uh, Burns was kind of up and down with the A's in 2000 2002 he was on the playoff rosters um, but he wasn't playing every day and if you look back in the 2001 and the Jeremy Giambi game uh, Eric Burns was on the bench and he was specifically on the roster to be a pinch runner that would have been a pretty good spot for Eric Burns to be a pinch runner, right? Down by a run, runner on first, late innings. Uh, and when asked about it, and Art Howe, to his credit, always had an answer. He said if Jeremy Jambi had gotten to second base, he would have pinch ran for him. But because there were two outs and he was at first, he didn't want to waste them right there. Still looking back, it would have been nice if Eric Burns was on first base when that ball was hit. Now in 2003, Eric Burns gets a chance to play, and I believe – in my time of, of being with the A's, I've never seen a guy 
as hot for as long as Eric Burns was in 2003. He had a 60-game stretch starting in April going through the end of June where he had 350 with 11 homers, 41 runs batted in, OPS over 1,000. Big hit after big hit, three-run home run off Mike McDougal in Kansas City in the ninth inning out of nowhere. Just unstoppable. Caps it off basically hitting for the cycle in San Francisco. Still the only player to ever hit for the cycle at what's now Oracle Park. That said, as hot as he was, I've never seen a player get as cold as he was. <laughs> right after that, he follows that up going 8 for 87. That's an 092 average over his next 26 games. I, he couldn't buy a hit. Couldn't, I mean, as hot as he was, as cold as he was, and then as baseball does, right? You play enough games, you, you reach your level. And that's what Eric Burns was. You know, he's good year in 2004. He had 283 with 20 homers in 2004, with 17 steals. Um, again, flying around the field, tackling guys who would run on the field, fans who would run on the field. He'd tackle them. What are you doing, Burnsy? This guy's going to hurt you. He didn't care. Finally, in 2005, they ended up trading him to the Rockies for Joe Kennedy, but always a soft spot. He's, he was one of the top 50 Oakland Athletics of all time. Is Eric Burns. I've gotten a chance to work with him now as a broadcaster, and he's fantastic. He loves baseball, and he just loves talking about the game and, and talking to players and just this joy. It, it's not fake. That's who he is. It's Eric Burns. I'm glad you say that because I think a lot of people, like if you, like, you know, the stuff he does, like let's say with you on the Pac-12 Network or stuff he does locally or the MLB Network, I could see people thinking it's a show. It's not a show. This is who this guy is. He is, and he's running at 100 miles an hour every day, and sometimes literally the way that he does his activities, but you know, his passion now with the uh, the robotic strike zone, that's real. He wants to improve the game. He wants to show that if you have, uh, you know, the, the virtual strike zone calling balls and strikes, it's going to improve the game. And the stuff he does on Baseball Network, the stuff he does with the college kids, it's just, it's infectious. And he's... He really is. He is just a good dude. A good dude who just is is high energy but is real. Number six. Number six is Mitchell Page. Now, Mitchell Page was acquired from the Pirates in the same deal that brought the A's, Rick Langford, Tony Armas. This was the deal they sent Phil Gardner to the Pirates. Uh, In 1977, he has a rookie year that's fantastic. Hits 301. Hits 21 bombs. He steals 42 bases, including the first 26 in a row, which was the time was an AL record. He was Page the Rage. This guy was unbelievable. Now, he finishes second in the AL Rookie of the Year. Now, I'm not quite as bitter about this as I am about Mike Norris not winning Cy Young in 1980, but I'm still a little bitter. Now, the Rookie of the Year in 1977 was Eddie Murray. Now, Eddie Murray goes on to, you know, have a Hall of Fame career. He was pretty good. He was good. But in that year, in that year of 77, Page beats him in every category except home runs. Eddie Murray had 28 home runs, Mitchell had 21, but he had a better average, drove him more runs, had a better OPS. His OPS was almost 100 points higher than Eddie Murray. So, yes, looking back in the long-term career, yes, Eddie Murray had the better career. But Mitchell Page deserved to be rookie of the year. He finished second, three votes shy. You know what the problem is? We didn't have OPS back then. Yeah, nobody was looking at these these other numbers. You're just looking at the counting numbers, right? Home runs and RBIs, and he out-homered them. He was going to win the AL Rookie of the Year. But for Mitchell Page in Oakland, especially in that time when there were no fans coming to the games in 77, there's no media coverage, that people still paid enough attention to him that he finished second, which was pretty cool. 
Uh, and Mitchell came back in 78, had another really good year, hit 285 with 17 homers, stole 23 bases, solid defender in left field. Uh, then in spring training, this is when it gets a little funky. Mitchell wasn't happy with the money he was making, and he decides to hold out in spring training. And this was when Charlie Finley still owns the team. And that's not going to fly with Charlie Finley. He's like, why is this kid? I have no money. He wants more money. We're not drawing any fans. This isn't going to work. And he basically said, okay, you're no longer playing left field. You're a DH only. And you're going to platoon. You're not even going to play against left-handed pitching. And basically derailed Mitchell Page's career because of this this walkout. Um you know, he stuck around a little bit longer, Mitchell Page, but he never really got to play every day anymore. Uh, but for those first two years and what he could have been, um, if he didn't walk out, I think it would be a different story. I think he had a world of talent. He ended up being a hitting coach later, a major league hitting coach uh, with the Cardinals. Unfortunately, he passed away much too young. But uh, Mitchell Page, Page the Rage, he is a big, big part of Oakland history. Page the Rage, I love it. Number five. Number five is another player who I think gets shortchanged for what he did in his time in Oakland, and that is former American League Rookie of the Year, Ben Grieve. You know, Ben became, I don't know why everybody got down on Ben Grieve, because you look at what he did, right? He comes up in 98, he's playing right field in 98 because Ricky was still on the team. Uh, but he wins Rookie of the Year, 288, 18 homers. He's an all-star. Moves over to left field in 99. And this is where I think it kind of started for him. He got off to a horrible start in 99. Playing left field, he was hitting under 200 at the end of April. And, you know, Ben had that way about him. He kind of looked like he wasn't given 100%. Looked a little lackadaisical at times. He had no throwing arm in the outfield. So I think people took that to mean that he didn't care. And to be honest, Ben did care. Uh, that's just the way he was. He was the exact opposite of an Eric Burns, right? Who you see hair on fire, 100%. Greaves, 100% was a little different. It was just a little more laid back, and it just didn't have that same look. But he had such a pretty swing. And even after such a bad start in 99, he finishes with 28 homers and 86 runs batted in. And hits 265. And in 2000, you know, this is an AL West winning team. He hits 27 homers and drives in 104 runs. Are you kidding me? This guy who people think doesn't care is putting up that type of production? Those are big numbers. Um, I think he just gets hurt by this perception of the way he played. Uh, but he put up big numbers. Wasn't a great defender. I mean, eventually, you know, D, being a DH would have been a better spot for him. But that, at that time, he's a young player. He's going to play left field. Um, the A's eventually trade him to Tampa Bay in the same deal that brings the A's Johnny Damon, Mark Ellis, Corey Lytle, which was a good move. And then Ben Grieve has to play for Lou Pinella in Tampa Bay. Now, if you know anything about Lou Pinella and the way that Ben Grieve kind of carried himself with that lackadaisical look, it did not mesh. Lou Pinella was all over him. He couldn't stand Ben Grieve. And because of that, Ben Grieve's career pretty much ends. He ends up with the Cubs, but... He had a short. He only had a very short career, about seven years in the majors, and and now he's a, a stay-at-home dad, which is something that he wanted to do. When you see, when you see Tom Grieve when he comes in with the Rangers, you say, how Ben? He goes, he's loving life. He's with his kids, and he's just having a great time. But uh, he was a good player for us. I remember covering his Rookie of the Year press conference that they had over in North Beach in San Francisco, thinking this kid's going to be a star. Like, he had star written all over him. Obviously, the pedigree uh, from his father, who you just mentioned, and big kid. Thought this was a guy that could just hit home runs and drive in runs for many, many years. He's really one of the shocking guys. When you look at the talent, you look at the numbers you just bring up, and you look at the overall production, it is kind of shocking. It is. This is the second overall pick out of high school in 1990. 
1994. You know, Paul Wilson went number one for the Mets, and I think they're still regretting that. Um, Later in that draft, there's Nomar Garcia could have been drafted. Uh, Paul Konerko was also in that draft. And Jason Veritek, those are the big players. But but Ben, yeah, it just fizzled out. I think if if, if he hadn't gone to Tampa and played for Lou Piniella, because I think Lou Piniella really broke his spirit, um, I think it might have been different. Uh, but he, he was good when he was here. I, I just wish fans could recognize how – I don't think they knew what they had because of the, just the perception they had of him. Number four. Number four. The youngest position player to ever play for the Oakland Athletics. That is Berkeley's own Claudel Washington. And Claudel Washington comes up to the A's in 1974. He's 19 years old. His first start here in the Coliseum, 47,000 people. Gaylord Perry's pitching for the Indians. Gaylord Perry has won uh, 15 straight games. So he's going for the American League record of 16 straight wins, a record held by Walter Johnson, Smokey Joe Wood, Lefty Grove, Schoolboy Row. These are big names. This is a big night. And Claudio Washington playing in front of this crowd, walk-off single in the 10th inning against Gaylord Perry. And the crowd just goes nuts. Nuts. Claudel is so good that they end up moving Joe Rudy from left field to first base so Claudel can play left field. And he ends up 74. He goes four for seven in the World Series. At that point, he had turned 20 years, 20 years old in the World Series, going four for seven. He's an all-star the next year in 1975, hitting 308. Uh, has a solid year in, in 76. Like, and this is such an athletic player with a with the broad shoulders kind of a spindly legs but could hit for power could run and then right before the season starts in march of 77 the a's trade him to the rangers for rodney scott a second baseman and i still don't know why it, it made no sense you had a local kid who was putting up big numbers you didn't you know yeah you made a little room for mitchell page but mitchell page could have played in right field he could there was other places for him you didn't need to get rid of claudio washington and that's that's when you look back claudio had a very good career played for a long time for atlanta for the yankees was always productive great teammate uh his career in oakland was cut short because of charlie finley and, and that's just too bad for a second baseman for a second baseman rodney scott i always remember him as a yankee yeah, and the way he swung, he could use the whole field, left to right. He just, I he, he talked Bernie Williams a lot, uh, just being there. Just Claudio Washington, I love Claudio. He's just a baseball card. that Claudio Washington looked good. He just looked so athletic, and knowing he was, he was hometown. He's from Berkeley High School. He's a Yellow Jacket. This is Claudio. Yeah, that one, that one still irks me. All right, we're now down to the top three. We know who number one is. I'm like, who is going to be the, who's three and two? Number three. Number three. Three made all the difference in 2012. They didn't bring back Josh Willingham because they knew they had an international player they were going to bring in. And that was Ioannis Cespedes. Ioannis, I mean, how dynamic was he? And that's what you need. And I still believe that today. To to be a winning team, you need dynamic players. And the A's have that right now with Matt Chapman because he's a dynamic player. Ioannis Cespedes was something that they desperately needed. You know, the YouTube videos from his time in Cuba, jumping over cars and doing whatever. You knew he was athletic. But to see him on the field, and he kind of stood by him. And I remember this in Japan, right? When the A's opened the 2012 season in Japan, and we're down. He's kind of given a press conference, and he didn't look like that big of a guy. Right? He looked kind of like a normal guy. He's great shape. 
But then he gets in the batter's box and he looks huge. He looks so much, I don't know what that was. It was so different. And seeing the ball off his bat, the sound that it made was different. It was special. And in 2012, he hits 292 with 23 homers, steals 16 bases, finishes second in the rookie of the year uh, to Mike Trout. Okay, that works. Uh, 2013, his average drops, but he still hits 26 homers, has a huge playoff series, hitting 381. He's just dynamic player. 2014, he's an all-star. He's a two-time home run derby champion. I mean, he was every, He was what you wanted to see out there, right? The great arm, making these unbelievable throws unbelievable plays and then the A's and again another regrettable trade they had already traded for Shamarja and Hamrell they thought they had they thought Billy thought they needed one more starting pitcher he was worried about the World Series and he traded Yoenis Cespedes for John Lester he traded his number three hitter a first place team trading a number three hitter you know how many times that's happened only one other time. 1992, when the A's traded Jose Canseco. It didn't work well then. Unfortunately, it didn't work well here. That team, it just changed that whole team. Injuries happened. You didn't have that force in the lineup. The A's, who had a lead in first place, ended up 10 games behind the Angels and having to go on the road for the wild card game. And it just, it just gutted this team. Yoannis Cespedes was that special player. Not just his actual what he did, but his presence in the lineup changed everything. Give you a little insight. At the time, I was doing a morning show on the A's flagship station at the time. And as I'm driving up 101 at whatever early in the morning, like 4 a.m., I get a text saying Cespedes is going to be traded. I'm like, no way. And I couldn't believe it. And you couldn't have had such a different opinion from Bob Melvin to Billy Bean. Bob Melvin knew that Yoannis Cespedes was the swagger of the team. Billy Bean, who I talked to about this trade a few times, really believed Yoannis was trending down. In the end, Bean was right long term. Long term, term, Bean was right. Bean didn't realize how this was truly going to affect this team. He was the show pony. He was the guy that everybody on the other team would come out and watch him take BP. He was the guy. He was like Jose Canseco. And when you took him off this team, it really changed the DNA of the team. And it changed who they were as the best team at the All-Star break to just floundering into the wild card. Yeah, it really was. And and again, you, you look around baseball and you see see teams who win and you go that's the guy right if you're the Dodgers you go that's Cody Bellinger look at him look at the Astros they have they have four guys when they're healthy with Bregman and Springer and Correa um, and Altuve uh, they don't come around very often the A's made a great decision to sign him get him to come to Oakland um, in 2014 he was in the third year of four-year contract so they still had another year of him if they wanted him yes he was training down the injuries were going to be happening but he had a very good year in 2015 as well he drove in 100 runs that year he went to the World Series with the Mets a little later um, uh, yeah, it's just gutting the team. I think that's the way to say it. It's just you don't do it. And I, I, we saw it with Conseco in '92. It changed everything. And in 2014, it was just it it destroyed this team. Number two, number two, on a more happy note, uh, Joe Rudy. Huh. 
And Joe Rudy was, you know, the left fielder for the A's in the championship years of 72, 73, 74. Uh, actually came up with the Kansas City A's originally. But when the A's moved to Oakland, the A's, one of the reasons the A's hired Joe DiMaggio to be a coach was to actually teach Joe Rudy how to play left field. Because they, they saw his ability, but it was so raw that he just needed to be to be taught. And he was actually out there with Joe DiMaggio every day in 1968 and 69 learning how to play left field. Uh, and then talk about paying it forward. When the A's brought in Jose Canseco in 85 and 86, when Jose was actually came up playing left field, it was Joe Rudy they brought in to teach him how to play left field, to keep those lessons going. But Joe Rudy, I mean, they a three-time All-Star with the A's. He won three gold gloves out in left field. But here's something people forget. He won the gold glove in left field in 1975. He only started 36 games in left field in 1975. Remember that when Rafael Primero won the gold glove at first base a few years ago and he only played like 29 games? Everybody's up in arms about it. Well, this happened with Joe Rudy, too, because Claude L was playing left. Joe was playing first. Joe wins the gold glove in left field. Uh, he finished second in AL MVP in 72 and in 74. That's how good Joe Rudy was. Uh, 19 World Series games, 300 average with two homers, including the game-winning home run in the seventh inning of game five of the 74 World Series. Uh, he, was just, he was a winner. Right. And that's why when he became a free agent and the Angels gave him all that money to go down there to play in 77, because Joe Rudy was a winner. Um, Big numbers, big hits, great defender. Uh, He actually comes back to the A's in 1982, finishes out his career, and he does something that very few players have done, uh, including the great Ted Williams. And that is homered in his final major league at bat. It's a home run off Larry Gurr in Kansas City. In Kansas City, the same town where he made his major league debut in 67. Talk about bookends. Uh, just he's, he's, you know, we talk about the A's Hall of Fame. Um, and this next class is going to be introduced soon. He's going to be in in the next few years because he is he is close to the Mount Rushmore of Oakland A's players, right? Joe Rudy, when you talk about the swinging A's of the 70s, he's right there. He's Joe Rudy. And truly one of the nicest men you'll ever meet. Yeah, just such a good guy. And just in talks and his memory is, you know, as these guys get older, uh, it's great when they come back just to tell the stories and keep those stories going uh, because they're tremendous. And their recall of events and, and, and things that happened are just, it's so much fun to listen to. And he's, he's one of the best. Number one, Ricky Henley Henderson. Was there any doubt? <laughs> Was there any doubt? Ricky, so we can go over all the numbers. But just to put it in perspective is his time with the A's, the Oakland A's. Uh, four stints with the A's. Uh, he is our all-time leader in games, hits, runs, doubles, triples, walks. Oh, and stolen bases. Wins a gold glove in 81. And I remember when he first came up. So in 1979, he gets called up. The A's are playing a twine doubleheader against the Yankees. Uh it was a, because there was a rainout. They scheduled twenty. There's 19,000 people in the crowd. 19,000. This is 1979 when they only drew what 340,000 the whole year. 19,000. There were fans sitting out by the bullpens. I had never seen that that year. That's how. So Ricky hits a ball into the right center field gap that Jerry Mumphrey, the Yankee center fielder, overruns, and Ricky starts running. And I'm sitting with my dad at the time. And we had never seen a guy this fast. And he was at third base in an instant. I'm like, oh, man, what do we have here? 
this guy was so fast. And then he just, he showed everything. In 1980, when Billy Martin takes over as manager, he can hit, he hits 300. Uh, you know, he should have won the MVP in 1981. Another one, I'll, I'll try and get off the soapbox. Raleigh Fingers wins it, but Ricky in the strike short year was so good. Uh, so the A's end up trading him. Right, they traded him to the Yankees. Uh, there was some money involved in some years, but when it came time to win again, they went back to Ricky, and they brought him back. And you think about that 1989 postseason. In the ALCS, he hits 400, eight for nine stolen bases, two homers, both in one game, scores eight runs, just drives the Blue Jays insane. Uh, I remember talking to them. They just thought when Ricky got him first, they should have just waved him to third because two pitches later, that's where he was going to be, and that's where he was. Then in the World Series against the Giants, he goes even up another level. Hits 474, 9 for 19, steals three more bases, leads off game four with a home run, a total Ricky moment. I just Overall in that postseason, a 441 average, his OPS in that postseason was 1509. That is the fourth highest in a single postseason all time. All That's how good Ricky was in 89. In 90, in a World Series the A's lost, Ricky still hit 333. Ricky was still a factor. 92, he's big. He comes back again with the A's after he gets traded in 93. Comes back in 95, hits 300 with that team. Comes back in 98, leads the league in steals at, what, 38 years old? I, this guy was just a marvel. He's Ricky Henderson. I, I don't think it's... When you talk about greatest left fielders of all time, he's in the conversation, right, with with Ted Williams and Ty Cobb and Ricky Henderson and, of course, Barry Bonds now, too. But of all time, he's on that list. And as far as leadoff batters, the greatest leadoff hitter of all time without a peer. And people talk about Tim Raines. Tim Raines was no Ricky Henderson, not even close to what Ricky could do offensively, defensively, and longevity-wise. Ricky was still playing in 2003, and he loved the game. And you see him now when he's out here, he still looks like he can play, right? You put him out there, he still looks like he can steal a base. I just, and as a kid growing up, he was my guy. I I just loved him. You see a guy that fast and that powerful and that little squatty stance, his 1980 Topps baseball card, if you get a chance to look, it's classic. It has that batting stance. It's awesome. It's Ricky. You know, you can make a case that he's one of the greatest players to have ever lived. Like, I don't know if he's the greatest. Everybody likes to say it, but it's not fair. I mean, there's been a lot of great players. But if you're going to have a conversation of who is the greatest player of all time, he has to be in the conversation. And the way he can affect a game, not just with his average, not with just his power, his defense was very good. Uh, Earl Weaver used to talk about how Ricky, because Ricky threw left-handed, right? So he's a right-handed hitter, but he but he threw left-handed. It was very rare. But his way, because he could get to the line in left field, because that's his glove side. And Earl Weaver said he steals so many doubles just because of his speed and the fact that he's left-handed that he can cut a ball off. You can't take the extra base against him. And then Ricky, if you walked him, late in the game, you always wanted Ricky to lead off an inning because you knew the pressure on a pitcher. One, if you give him a fastball to not walk him, he's hitting out of the park. And then you're, if you if you you know kind of nibble at him, he's going to take that walk and he's going to steal second and he's going to steal third and he's going to score and it's going to be a Ricky run. It's just those are the, the way he impacted a game. Definitely in the conversation of greatest players of all time. And and anybody who doesn't think so, it's just they're just foolish. 
Quickly, go down the top 10, starting number 10. Number 10, Oakland A's left fielders all-time, Stan Javier. Number 9, Jay Payton. Number 8, Luis Polonia. Number 7, Eric Burns. Number 6, The Rage, Mitchell Page. Number 5, Ben Grieve. Number 4, Claudel Washington. Number 3, Ioannis Cespedes. Number two, Joe Rudy. And number one, with a star and another star and a star after that, Ricky Henderson. Top 10 left fielders all time in Oakland A's history with the great Dave Feldman right here on A's Cast. Green and gold history, it doesn't get any better than that. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.